as Bree mentioned, uh, there's a bunch of projects going on at the church right now, um, doing some campus improvements. One of the things we did was we put new tinting on the windows, and they're really clear. And in first service, there were like two or three birds that ran into the windows trying to fly through. There's nothing scary about that, right? But if they break the glass and get in, it's every man for himself. And the exit's in the back. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, I want to start off today. Uh, there, there was a, a message that was sent out this last week um, by a TV show that's on HBO. And it's not a very good show, but a lot of people like it. I may be one of them. Um, and uh, the simple message uh, was coded. It just said, winter is coming. You might know what that means because you're a sinner. And um, there's a new season of the show that, that's on the way. And I'm not recommending you watch this show, if you know what I'm talking about. If not, thank God. Um, I may have watched it. And uh, it's one of those shows that will rot your teeth and corrupt your soul. So... Um, don't watch it. But a new season's coming out, and it is a show that has really captivated culture for like the last seven to ten years. Like, tons of people love this show. And uh, there's kind of like three key ingredients that make this show just good, or you know, people say it's good, that people like. And, and it's the same three, three ingredients that are in like, you know, what makes a newspaper popular, what makes the news... Like, and so the first thing is, uh, it's a show about like a royal family. And this royal family, there are uh, you know, the dynamics of, like, the power disputes. Um, second key ingredient is there's, like, scandalous romance happening. And so um, lots of drama, lots of, of things going on. And then the third thing is that there's, like, religious controversy. So these three key ingredients usually capture people's attention. People, like, like this, those kind of stories. And um, I bring that up because as we're reading through the Gospel of Mark, we come to a story today that is so out of place for the Gospel of Mark. And it, and it has a feel that it feels like this show that I'm talking about. I mean, it's, there's scandal that happens here. Um, it's a terrifying story. It's a heartbreaking story. And it's all sorts of dramas going on. And it's interesting that Mark places it here because as you, if you've been tracking with us through the life of Jesus, this is a story that actually Jesus isn't the center of this story. There's like two stories in Mark where Jesus isn't like the focal point. And uh, it's a story about John the Baptist. And it's a story about uh, King Herod and his birthday party. And the story is found in Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 14 through 29. Let's just read through it and then, um, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll move through it. So, uh, if you want to open to Mark chapter 6, verses 14, I think we got the words up here behind me. It says, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. So if you remember last week, Jesus goes back to his hometown. He's rejected by his hometown. He says a prophet in his hometown has no aunt, you know, and sends out his disciples. He sends out 12 of them with this mission, and they're, they're going out and now doing the work that Jesus has entrusted them with. And so this story picks up with him, King Herod, hearing about what was going on, that Jesus' name had become very well known. Some were saying, uh, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets long ago. So Herod has heard about Jesus, and now Herod is trying to make a decision on 
What is the identity of this person? What is the identity of Jesus? Verse 16 says, but when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. That's an interesting line there. John, who we find out Herod has killed, he's worried that he has been raised from the dead. Remember, this is before Jesus has been raised from the dead. So we find that there's this fear in this ruler, this political ruler, of he disposed of John and he's afraid he's come back. And then it tells us the backstory. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had him bound and put in prison. He did this because Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, that's weird, For John had been saying uh, to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So there's this little scandal going on with this royal family. John calls it out. The wife, Herodias, gets ticked. Has John put in prison? And it says that Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. That's quite the grudge. To nurse a grudge and want to kill someone, she is uh, not happy. She was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, and yet he liked to listen to him. So Herod's in this weird place. Finally, the opportune time came, and on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. So this was everyone that's important is here to celebrate Herod. He's throwing a birthday party for himself, and he's brought all the important people. When the daughter of Herodias came in, she danced for them, and she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So a new character in the story, it's Herodias' daughter, and it says that she dances for her dad, her stepdad, and all of the men, which is, that's a bizarre thing going on here. My guess is they're so overindulged with something that Herod's not in his right mind, and he is so pleased with how the dancing is going that he makes this oath to her. He says, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So that's, you know, that's not like a literal, he's just saying, I, I'll give you whatever you want. He, he's willing to, he wants to reward her for what she's doing. So she goes out, verse 24, said to the mother, what shall I ask for? And Herodias says, the head of John the Baptist. I'm imagining she says this and there's like this hysterical laugh, like, (laughs) you know, like, whoa, she she says anything her daughter can get, wealth, you know, horses, whatever's valuable back then, jewel, and she asks for the head of John. This is that, that grudge she has nursed. She wants John dead, and now she has the opportunity. She's got Herod trapped. At once, the girl hurried in to the king with the request. She says, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Where it's like, that even got more strange, right? That that got weird. Not only is she wanting his head, now this daughter has created this scene where it's even more morbid. 
it feels even more evil. And it says the king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. And the man went and he beheaded John in the prison and he brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. It's a pretty sad story. It's a devastating story. It's a story that's gut-wrenching. And when you hear this story, it just doesn't seem to fit the narrative of what's going on because this feels like an Old Testament story or, or like a Greek tragedy or a Persian tragedy. And Mark places this. And if you've been tracking with the narrative, Mark's been talking about all these good things that Jesus has been doing and the, the, the life that he's bringing and the people that he's healing and then it's like, almost like a foot, it's like this completely like out of nowhere, oh, by the way, this happened to John the Baptist. What is Mark doing here by placing this right, boom, in the story of Jesus? Well, I think John is painting a picture of the context of what is like the life in the setting of where Jesus is at. This is a time of, uh, of violence, this is a dangerous time to be alive. This is a time where uh, what we see happen to John the Baptist, we realize what's at stake with this kingdom that Jesus is preaching. Their lives are at risk. I want to look at just a few things, the context and then the characters of this story. And we'll see, I think, what, what Mark's directing us towards. One is just the context. Not only is this a, a, a very dangerous time to be alive, the story takes place in this dungeon palace uh, that Herod has been uh, doing upgrades and improvements on. It's on, like, the southeast part of the realm that he's ruling over. Um, it's this uh, fortress called uh, the, the Machaerus which is like a dungeon, dungeon fortress up on this big ridge that overlooks the Dead Sea. And at the bottom of this fortress is this dungeon that John would have been kept in. It has this very like medieval feel to it. And you would just imagine, like Herod's up, he probably has this huge balcony and overlooks this Dead Sea. Um, it's, it's a place of, of uh, protection for his realm because they have this country to the east of them that's not happy with them. And it's just a, a time of great, uh, 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 it's a very volatile time. There's a lot of warfare happening, a lot of moving political pieces. And here's what we know about the characters that are involved in this story. You have John, John the Baptist, who most, most of us know about John the Baptist. You have Herod, and it's important to note that this is Herod Agrippa, or Herod Antipas, not Agrippa, Herod Antipas, who's one of the sons of Herod the Great. And then you have Herodias, who is Herod the Great's granddaughter, who is also married to one of his sons, who is now married to another one of his sons. She's an interesting character. And then you have the daughter of Herodias that's in this story. And what's interesting about this story is we have another source for it, 
That's a secular source. Josephus, the the historian, talks about what happens in this story. And there's not a whole lot of like cross-references with with scripture and, and historians. This is one of them. Josephus talks about how Herod kills John the Baptist, and he actually gives this daughter the name Salome. So most people, it's Herodias and her daughter Salome is what we know. But we know a lot about John the Baptist, right? Like if you grew up in church, you know about John the Baptist. Uh, He's got that famous story, like in the Christmas story, where his mother Elizabeth and father Zachariah, they they are barren, but they're blessed, and they're unable to conceive, and then the angel comes, and and we find that Elizabeth is is pregnant. This is before Mary finds out that she's pregnant. Um, They're related to Mary, so John the Baptist is like Jesus' cousin. Um, he's, He's born into this world. And he grows up, he moves out to the wilderness, kind of like this hermitage. People think that he joined this group called the Essenes. They were this uh, group that had like, removed themselves from society to focus on studying scripture and devoting themselves to righteousness and abiding in the relationship with God. And John the Baptist kind of comes out of that upbringing and when he appears back on the scene, it's right about the time Jesus is starting his ministry and John the Baptist is baptizing people and calling them to repentance and calling them to turn, their, turn back and, and come to God. He's calling them to live righteous lives. When we started the Gospel of Mark, it opens with John the Baptist and his message And one of the things that he's doing is he's preparing the way for Jesus as it says that he says, someone after me is coming and this person is going to be even greater than I am. We know that John the Baptist is out of the wilderness, like wearing like camel hair, camel fur and eating locusts. And he's kind of like this Old Testament prophet that has this uh, influential voice as he's critiquing culture. And then in verse 14 of chapter one of Mark, we find that John the Baptist gets arrested and we don't hear from him again until now, chapter six. John the Baptist is this person of great moral courage as he's preparing the way for Jesus. And this is how it ends for him. This other character, you have Herod, Herod Antipas. Most of us know Herod the Great, you know, he's, he's ruling this area when Jesus is born. He's kind of the puppet king of Rome. Very controversial figure, very paranoid leader. Um, we know that, you know, the, the wise men show up at the Christmas story and tell Herod about the birth of a new king. And he goes out and has, you know, all the, the, the newborn uh, boys murdered and killed. Uh, historians tell us that Herod was, he was so, he, he was so paranoid about preserving his power that he ends up murdering a lot of his own family, some of his wives, at least three of his children. In fact, word, word about Herod gets back to Rome and like the Caesar, whoever Caesar at the time is like, it, you know, it's safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. This guy is a mad king. This guy is nuts. And he has a few sons that survive that inherit the kingdom. They split it up. And one of them is this guy in this story, Herod Antipas. So imagine your dad is a mad king, you grow up in the palace, you've been given everything, you've watched your dad abuse power, solve all of his problems by abusing his power, and then you inherit everything from him. This Herod Antipas is a pretty corrupt person. I would say he's actually pretty out of touch with reality. We know that he sets up this capital in Palestine in this place um, that was 
wants a cemetery. And he, he puts it here because he realizes that none of the Jewish people will walk on his land because they would become unclean. So he like separates himself from the people that he's ruling. The Jews can't stand this guy. And then he has this controversial marriage to Herodias. A little background on her. If you look at the character of, of this woman, she's an incredibly powerful and influential and conniving and terrifying person. She's married to Herod Antipas' brother, Philip. And what the story, as the story goes, they're living in Rome, and she's enjoying the high life in Rome. And Herod Antipas, her brother-in-law, shows up. We find out that they fall in love. They have this affair. Scandalous. And what happens is they realize they want to be together, but Herod Antipas is married to some other person, and they plot to leave the brother Philip and move back to Palestine, and Herod decides he's going to create an accident to get rid of his wife. So they're like, can I, they're, they're putting together this plot so they could be together. And what happens is the wife finds out this is going on, and it just so happens that she's an Arabian princess. And she runs home and tells dad about it. And her dad is this great king on the eastern side of this part, the empire, and he has this big army, and he's ticked. So Herod Antipas goes back to Palestine with this scandalous marrying of his brother's wife. And the whole country is in chaos wondering what's going to happen next. And John the Baptist calls them out on it. Then you have Salome, the daughter, the daughter of Herodias. It tells us that she's, she, she, I, I believe that the, the term that's used is the same term that's used in this previous passage where Jesus heals Jairus' daughter. She's probably a young teenager. And boy, is her life crazy. As a young teenager, she's brought in to dance before her stepfather and all of his generals and top I mean, you imagine what this, this is, these are the people ruling when Jesus is alive. It's chaos. It's scandalous. The people are ticked and afraid and confused. What do we learn from these characters? I mean, if this dynamic is playing out and we see how the chaos escalates now, John, what, what is it that we draw? And why would Mark be telling us all about this? Well, I think he wants us to know the situation that John the Baptist and Jesus are in. But there's something I think that we, we could pull out of these characters that, that is helpful for us. Like with John the Baptist and, and his life and how he eventually dies, he has so much potential. He's born with this almost miraculous birth and his mom was barren, but now she has him. And he's building all this momentum as this religious leader. And, and this is how it ends. Devastating for him. I think what Mark is telling us with John the Baptist is, here's what we learned from John's life. There are some things in this life that are worth spending our life for. There are some things that are worth giving our life for. And John does that. John loses his head, but he keeps his convictions. John has the ability to know what God has called him to do, and it doesn't, doesn't matter what that's going to cost him. He's willing to spend it 
to do what God's asking him to do. I think what Mark reminds us is you become a follower of Jesus. If you're doing the will of God here on earth, there's a cost to it. You've got to count that cost. There's a cost to discipleship, as some have said. And John decides there's something that God has called him to do, and he's willing to spend his life to do it. He's willing to to give his life for it. And what we find in his life is moral courage. He's able to call out what he sees as corruption. Something that I think is hard for us to understand, the place that these guys are in, that how dangerous the rulers are to them. Like, we live in this country where we get to say whatever we want about our rulers. We live in a country where we say our rulers work for us, right? In fact, even when you look at, like, our, our local government, and, you know, we have a governor here in Arizona, and I, I happen to like him. I pray for him. I know he's controversial. I can't imagine what he's gone through this year. Leadership is hard. This has been the hardest year to ever lead anything. Um, and it's been, uh, he, you probably have all sorts of feelings about him. But I have a friend that has a, a name that he's given him, and I think it's hilarious. He calls him Lord Ducey. I'm like, that's pretty funny, <laughs> Lord Ducey. We could say that, and we could joke about our leaders, and we could say whatever we want about them, because our life isn't threatened by it, right? And to, it's hard to understand what John is up against when he calls out this scandal that's happening with his leaders. John realizes, if I say this about them, there's a good chance I'm in trouble. It's so hard to understand what that would be like. But John has this moral courage where he calls out Herod and Herodias for what's going on. And because of that, it costs him his freedom and his life. But he's willing to spend that because he feels like this is what God's called him to do. There are some things in this life that are, are, are worthy of us spending our life on. Uh, Jesus, the, the, the message of Jesus is that he invites us to life that is eternal. Life that is eternal, that, that for us, that, that we know someday in heaven, when, when all is said and done, we will have eternal life and e- eternal abiding with God and relationship with God and everything will be put back together. But we see glimpses of eternity here and now. The kingdom of heaven is breaking through here and now. But here's another thing about eternity. When we die, the things that we have spent our life on can live on even after we die. So yes, eternity is something that, that is our future and it's in heaven. And yet there's also something about, we, we, we see this with people who leave legacies. For John, his life lives on after his death, even to the point that Herod's afraid that he's back from the dead. The life Jesus invites us to has eternal implications and that starts now. The life that the church invites us to is a sacred mission where we spend our life on things that outlive us. There's something connected with eternity. And there's some things in this world that are worth spending our life for. What do we learn from Herodias? Well, it's a little bit harder to find. You know, it's almost like a negative lesson. Herodias, who connives to have this thing happen where John the Baptist loses his life, we find that she's very conniving. Um, and she's very powerful. I think what we, we learn from Herodias is what happens uh, when anger and hatred take hold in our heart. It spills out and hurts everyone around us. And the thing that power does 
and influence is it takes the things that we're holding in our heart and it almost like uh, magnifies them. And so like for her, she has the ability to actually execute the things that she's thinking. The power uh, almost is like an enhancer of the hatred that's going on in her life. And because of that, people around her suffer. Because hatred in our heart, fueled by anger, hurts people. The more power we have, the more that flows out of us. And obviously it hurts John the Baptist, right? I mean, he loses his head, he dies. But I think it also hurts her family. I mean, think of her daughter, Salome. Like, there, there's a darkness to that as well, because when, when she tells her, I want John's heart on, I want, I want John's head, the daughter expands that story and makes it even more morbid. She comes in and says to Herod, we want John the Baptist's head. Oh, and by the way, serve it on a platter for this dinner party. I mean, what, what has taken hold inside of Herodias' heart is now pouring out of her into, into her daughter, Salome. All those around her, there, there's this damage that comes from the hatred and anger in her heart. It hurts others. Then you look at the character of Herod, Herod Antipas. What do we learn from him? We learn what not to do as a leader, right? And it's like every decision he's making is the wrong one. But Herod's making decisions based on fear and insecurity. And, it, and in fact, what I'd say is that Herod fears man and people's opinion more than he fears God. So he gets to this moment in this story and it says he's actually afraid of John because John is like creating this political unrest. So he's trying to like, you know, he arrests him and he's keeping him, but he doesn't want to kill him because he knows the influence that John has. And then he has him in prison because he's afraid of Herodias and she wants him in prison, wants him locked up because she's ticked at him. And then when this story starts to unfold, he's got all of his top like leaders with him, his generals, his governors, all of them are with him. And it says, once he's told that they need to bring John's head on a platter, he's greatly disturbed. He knows it's not right. And it says, but because of his, his oaths and his dinner guests, he follows through on it. He has zero moral courage. He fears everyone around him more than he fears God. And the fear of man over the fear of God is a sure recipe for chaos in our life. And this whole story turns into like an HBO show. It just slips into chaos. He has no moral courage. He's afraid of what everyone else thinks. So we hear this story, we see this all play out, and you... Or like, this feels like an Old Testament story. Why is Mark putting it in here? What is Mark trying to teach us? And where is Jesus? I mean, where, like, there's only two stories Mark tells that Jesus isn't the center of it. But like, this is in Jesus' story. So what is going on here? What, why is this in the story of Jesus? Is it just to give us context? I think there's a couple things that we learn that Mark is pointing us to when it comes to the life of Jesus in this story. The one is this connection between John the Baptist and Jesus. We know from the very beginning they're connected, they're cousins, 
Their birth comes about in a way that the angel shows up and declares that this is going to happen. John the Baptist has already said he's preparing the way for the Lord, that the one who's supposed to come after him is going to be greater. There's something in here about resurrection. It says Herod's afraid that John has been raised from the dead. Why would Herod, like Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead yet. There's a little bit of foreshadowing. We're talking about the life, what Jesus was about to do. The story of John also ends with him being put in a tomb by his disciples. And for John, that's it. The story's over. But there's this language that is brought back up in Easter, the story of Mark, where Jesus goes into a tomb. And, and I think what Mark is doing is he's, he's painting a picture of the world that, that John the Baptist dies in is the same world that kills Jesus. The difference is when John says, the one who's coming after me is going to be greater than I am, it's foreshadowing that what is coming with Jesus is, is the conquering of death. So the life that John spends doesn't just end in the grave because when you spend your life because of resurrection, because we have this eternal perspective, the things that we spend our life on are redeemed. We don't see that with John until we understand resurrection through Jesus. Whatever it is in this world that we're giving our life to, when, it's, when we're giving our life to the things God has called us to, no matter how much it costs us, no matter how much painful it is, no matter how much it feels like death. With Jesus, there's resurrection. John's pointing us to something greater than himself. The way of the kingdom, this is how it works. Jesus uses language like, a kernel of wheat must fall and die. But something about resurrection, people through our death, through us spending our lives, true life is found. When Jesus talks about life, he wants to give us life to the full. And the way of the kingdom is that comes from us spending our lives on the things God's called us to. What we have in the story of John is foreshadowing what's going to happen in Jesus. But then also in this story, what you have is this weird, like if, 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 if there's this connection with John and Jesus, there's also this strange comparison between Herod and Jesus. I mean, Herod is this king, and he's not actually a king. Uh, he wants to be king. Mark calls him a king, which there's some irony there, because he wants to be king, but no one's really accepting him as king. They know he's a puppet, and he's imperfect. And there's this, this, this weird language that's used with Mark, uh, where, he, where he's talking about how there's this king, Herod, who sends his executioner, he sends him to go kill John. It's the same phrase that's used in the very passage before when Jesus sends his disciples to go accomplish his will. They both, apostle means to be sent. Jesus sends his apostles to go out to heal, to bring life, to drive out demons. This king sends his messenger to go and to kill John. There's this weird play that, for, for one, the king uses his apostles to bring about death. One uses his apostles to bring about life. There's another weird play on words going on here with Mark where he says, when Herod receives this news that his wife wants John's head on a platter, he's greatly disturbed and distressed. That phrase only happens one other time in the Gospel of Mark, and it's when Jesus is in the garden right before the cross. 
And I think what Mark is reminding us is this earthly ruler who is imperfect is greatly disturbed and distressed, and he makes a decision where someone has to die for him to appease his situation. But with Jesus, we have this king who's willing to die for us. Mark's reminding us that we serve a different type of king, one that doesn't use his power to exploit us or to solve his own problems, one that uses his power to bring us life, life eternal. We have two kings in the story. Mark is saying this earthly ruler is imperfect and will fail us and will disappoint us. Don't put your hope here. We have this eternal king that invites us to this life where he spends his life for us and he invites us into this sacred calling and mission and story that connects us with eternity. Jesus is our sufficient king. He spends his life for us. When you look at this story, you realize that Mark is creating uh, some foreshadowing of what Jesus is about to do, who Jesus is. He's reminding us where we take our trust, where we place our trust. Jesus invites us to a life that is eternal. He makes that possible with his death. This is the story that we're a part of. Tim's going to come back up, and we're going to close with a time. And I just want us to reflect and focus on Christ as our king. We come to his throne. We come to his throne in worship, knowing he doesn't disappoint us. As we read through this story today, there's all these characters that might stir something inside of us. I mean, maybe like John, we, we know there's things in this world that we want to expend our life, just giving our life to. And it's hard, and it costs something. But we're reminded that those things that we, we spend our life on are redeemed. Maybe we find ourselves like Herodias, where there's anger and hatred in our heart, and we realize what that's doing to the people around us. Herodias isn't able to come to terms with that. Maybe we need to. Maybe we find ourselves like Herod where we are faced with decisions of right or wrong and instead of just doing the right thing, we're so concerned about what everyone else will think about it and Christ is inviting you to just have moral courage. Maybe today you just need to place your trust back in our King, Jesus. We're going to take some time just to reflect and let the words of this story just um, get inside of us wrestle with where we're at relationally with people, emotionally, spiritually. Let this story get inside of us, these words from Mark. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for uh, your word. Even stories like this that are crazy, we know it is in here for a reason and that you uh, speak to us through these words. Something mysterious happens as your, your spirit um, connects with us. And as we think of this story, Lord, and are reminded of what uh, it was like 2,000 years ago, what your followers were up against, what you went through. Lord, I just ask that you would just give us an eternal perspective. 
that we're a part of this old story. Lord, I ask that you'd remind us that where we place our hope matters, that you are the sufficient king, that you spend your life for us. Lord, I ask that you would meet us here today. It's in your name we pray, amen.